Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. Before we kick off the show, I just wanted to take a moment to remind you that the ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is taking place in Barbados this summer. This, by default, gives all of my fellow cricket fanatics the perfect excuse to go and book a holiday to Barbados in June and experience firsthand the euphoric atmosphere at the Kensington Oval, the cricket mecca of the Caribbean. If the cricket alone isn't enough to tempt you, then let me be the one to remind you that a trip to Barbados can also include leisurely strolls along the breathtaking coastline, mouth-watering flavours of the world-class Bayesian cuisine, and, of course, plenty of rum. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados, the best place to be a cricket fan. Welcome to the following on podcast from TalkSport. I'm John Norman alongside Jared Kimber reflecting on England's 3-0 series win over New Zealand and asking the question, just how did Brendan McCullum, Ben Stokes and Team England turn it around? You're listening to Following On. So, if you're listening to the show, you no doubt know by now, England uh, won by seven wickets, uh, wrapping up victory shortly before 3pm after a delayed start uh, saw them get underway at half past one. Jack Leach, man of the match, player of the match, five for 100 in the first innings, five for 66 uh, in the second. Player of the series, the former England captain, Joe Root who uh, weighed in with 396 runs. It was pretty straightforward in the end, as we confidently predicted it would be yesterday. Ollie Pope going early, uh, clean bowl by a beauty from uh, Tim Southey for 82. But Johnny Bairstow came in and just get got uh, uh, amongst them uh, very quickly. 71 from just 44 deliveries, denied Joe Root another century. He ended up 86 not out. And England ended up worthy winners of a fluctuating series of test matches. Uh, all three, England uh, saw themselves facing uh, what used to be a tricky last day total. But uh, in this occasion, uh, well, it was just so comfortable, wasn't it? So for the uh, remainder of the show, we're not really going to be looking back at, at uh, the action from day five at Headingley, nor the test match as a whole, nor the series as a whole. A lot of that will be covered in the Cricket Collective with Steve Harmison and Neil Manthorpe tomorrow. No, instead, we're going to be asking the question, just how did England turn it around? Story of the day. 
Okay, Jared, let's, um, how many are we going to do? Should we do, should we do 10 reasons how and why um, England have turned it around? Because there's no point talking about day five, follow the pattern. We we said it that England were going to chase it down without any fuss. England chased it down without any fuss. Um, I think actually, if you go back to day three, when I did the episode with Eek, I literally said what would happen. Mitchell, Blundell, um, yeah. and then the chase almost verbatim as it happened. It is eerie how similar these three tests were. Yeah, absolutely. But there's something else as well, because um, a guy called Aidan, who lives out in Hamilton, I think it's Hamilton. Oh, no, it might be Napier. Either way, I've offended him. New Zealand. Uh, He was listening to our podcast on the eve of Trent Bridge, day four Trent Bridge. Oh, no, it wasn't me and you, it was me and uh, Harmy. And essentially, he, he WhatsApp me and he just said, wow, you sound really confident England are going to chase down that score. And, you know, that's one test in, basically. Mm-hmm. One test in. Uh, I mean, I remember us sitting at tea, Trent Bridge, and we needed 100, England needed 160 to win from the final session. And it was really memorable because nobody knew what was going to happen. But there was no fear attached to it. Everybody just thought, well... You know, even if they don't get 160, England will be able to shut up shop on that pitch. But it was just a feeling England were going to do it. And fast forward to this test match. And even if England had been set 375, just still would have felt like they were going to do it. So it's all a bit bizarre. But, um, OK, I'm going to start with one one reason for the upturn in fortune. And then uh, we could go back and forth until we run out of um reasons or we can uh, reach 10 and that'll be it but the reason that england have turned things around is that essentially they were never as bad as the record suggests in the first place you know essentially they uh, they were underperforming they've got some some very good players some very experienced players and they've gone from a position where most of them wanted out of the side um, because of COVID or for whatever other reasons. And COVID is another reason, by the way, I think a huge reason why England are performing here out of COVID uh, restrictions rather than the two years that preceded it when they were very much in COVID restrictions. But essentially, they were never as bad as the record suggests. And uh, we'll probably find out in the next 12 months they're not quite as good as what the last three test matches have suggest, uh, suggest they are either. Yeah, it's... I mean, what were they, 1-16, and 1-17 coming into this series? I mean, I don't know how bad you would have to be for that to be accurate. Uh, you know, what, what Zimbabwe mid-ban? I mean, yeah. you know, you know ba- Bangladesh, where they started test cricket. So you're right. And I think there's been a regression to the mean, which, you know, we talk about a lot on this sort of podcast because it does happen. Uh, and there, there was always going to be, there always had to be a bounce back um, because they weren't that bad. Um, so, yeah, that and COVID, two very good reasons. I'm going to go with one of the most simple ones, which we almost always underestimate, when, especially when I'm doing the IPL or, or a World Cup and you're looking at the teams. I do those power rankings, right? Yeah, You're yeah. trying to work out. Quite often, you look at it and you're just like, oh, I see. Their top seven batters are all in form. Yeah. And so then you think, well, okay, so what's this team going to be like when only four of them are in form? And I think it might have been the Sunrisers might have been a really good example of this this year where all five of their bowls are at form at the same time. And I'm looking at it going, 
not sure this can last. And by the end of the year, they had one bowler left in form. And, you know, they completely fell off the page once they lost that form. You look at England, uh, I think Lees is in his best test form, although you certainly wouldn't, you know, say he's smashing it everywhere, but probably in his best test form, although Zach Crawley did run him out. Pope is in his his best form. Obviously, Root's in his best form. Stokes and Bairstow and Folks are all in their best form. You would say even if, if, you, if you're talking just batters, um, Overton, again, probably in his career best batting form. You and I both seen him make 90s this year. Um, and then you go to the bowling. Potts is in his best ever form. Leach is in his best ever form. You start to put all this together and you're like, oh, now I know. How would this team go when there's, you know, it's not just Crawley struggling and it's a bunch of people. Yeah, well, you don't have to go back to the West Indies, don't you? Um, <laughs> the, the other reason, another reason for the upturn of fortunes, they're not playing Australia or India away. They're playing yeah, New I'm, Zealand at home. Is it? Okay, are these two different things? I think playing at home matters. It certainly um, does. And then also playing a team that's mid-crisis also Well, that, that was going to be another reason. Yeah. So, so realistically, we've also seen them be pretty ordinary at home over you know over you know a little while but we never thought they were that bad at home we thought they played some poor cricket at times but I don't think we ever sat around going this team is absolutely garbage when it was in England it's usually when it traveled when it went to the West Indies or when it went to Australia when it went to India where you're just like oh my god how are they going to win a game again right so I do think that playing at home especially for the more and more research I do on this especially when it comes to red ball cricket the more I think that after almost a hundred years of England having an advantage over everyone else by being the first professional nation and the ones who invented the sport and having a structure that allowed for more professionals to come through or amateurs to play as professionals, pretend they were amateurs, but um, all that sort of stuff happening had this huge advantage, but English pitchers are so unlike anywhere else. And it's the hardest structure to change because it's actually the most successful domestic structure. Right? So what it means is that the pitchers are probably even more weighted towards English conditions than South Africa are or Australia are or India are and all these other places. And I wonder if that there is a natural disadvantage there that the only reason we haven't seen it in English cricket throughout the history of mankind is because the other teams were still developing and you get to the 80s and suddenly the West Indies have developed and Pakistan have developed and New Zealand have developed, then Sri Lanka developed and you suddenly like, oh no there's a problem with county cricket and it's not really county cricket it's partly to do with the climate it's partly to do with the pitches and so from all that what i mean is they have a huge advantage at home but a huge disadvantage when they travel um and you are right that they're playing at home so that's that's definitely reason number four and then let's go straight into reason number five we saw them play against New Zealand last year. This wasn't a Chris Silverwood thing. Chris Silverwood wasn't the reason they were losing to New Zealand last year. New Zealand were way better last year. They were completely on point. It felt like any, you know, Lockie Ferguson, they could have brought Mitch McLennigan out and he would have bowled, you know, absolutely you know, <laughs> brilliant. You know, Colin de Grandholm could have opened the batting and, and Daryl Mitchell could have been their wicketkeeper and they would have worked it out last year. They were absolutely flying at that point, New Zealand cricket. And there's, there's no way that we can we can sit here honestly and say that that is still the case. New Zealand cricket is, it, it, it looks broken at the moment. Now, I don't mean broken as in it will never put its pieces back together. But right at the moment, you look at it and you go, do they know how they need to fix this team? Um, and based on what we've just seen, I would say that the answer was no multiple times. 
Well, it's interesting that the two players, you take, say the only two players to come out of the series with any real upturn in the um, perception of their careers and the way they've they've gone and they're going are two players who weren't even in the squad. I mean, Blundell might have been, Blundell might have played one test actually instead of BJ Watling, but Daryl Mitchell was nowhere near the side, was he, last uh, last year? And you run through the whole side. Conway hit a 200 at Laws last year. Hasn't come close this, this year. Will Young scored a really important 80-odd, I think, at Edgbaston last year against England. Patel took a four for Henry. You know, when it came to the World Test Championship final, they had to, like, cut loose, cut three or four top performers. You know, there was there mm. was 15 players that justify, could have justified a position in the top 11. And, Far cry this year, a few injuries, down on luck. And uh, you just feel that they've peaked as well. And, of course, Williamson's runs are a huge problem. Um, OK, I'm not sure if it's uh, reason number five, six or seven. Let's go We've six. done five, I'm counting. All right, five. OK, so this is six. England have got a foreign coach. OK. Now, <laughs> if you think, i tell you what, as I walked away from... Uh, Lords, I think it was. It reminded me a little bit of how I felt after the 2005 Oval Test, after Kevin Peterson taking on Brett Lee. And essentially, with the series on the line, Brett Lee bowling 90 miles an hour at Kevin Peterson's head, um, Kevin Peterson decided to take the bowler on. And we all know what happened What happened later. Uh, what happened then? Kevin Peterson won. And Kevin I just... Dropped him. Well, and and actually, truth be told, a few years on, KP was honest enough to say, actually, he was bricking it. He was he was he was bricking it, and, and he didn't know what to do. He basically was just like, it was in the lap of the gods, and it went Kevin Peterson's way. But let's not forget that shortly before the Ashes, Kevin Peterson had essentially gone to uh, back home to play for England, and had played an ODI series where. You know, the atmosphere was, it was feral. You know, it was like an old firm derby. Rangers against Celtic and Mo Johnson's playing. You know, it was, that was probably a reference you don't don't get. No, No, don't don't worry about it. But essentially Mo Johnson went from one to the other um, and he's never, ever been forgiven. And essentially that was the atmosphere, you know, in South Africa. And he absolutely smashed that South African, great South African ODI side around in three of the five games, I think it was. End of that summer, I just thought to myself, there's a reason why that that was so astonishing. And essentially, it's because he's he's not English. You know, English way is conservative. Always has been, always will be. So what you get is, what you need for successful England teams is to have a foreign coach. And a foreign captain as well, to be honest, or a foreign ball captain, because otherwise they just play it safe. There's no way in the world that England play that that brand of cricket if they don't have a foreigner as a coach, because the English way is not that way. See, I don't disagree with you, but I also think when you say they're conservative, I was, I was having a chat to someone about this today, and he was, and, and he was sort of saying, you know, uh, what England are doing is not sustainable. And I was like, well, what they were doing beforehand wasn't sustainable either. At least they've won three tests. Like, take the victories where you can get them. And then I said, the one thing that has been sustainable, I, I'm going to go back 
to almost Ali Brown, right? From Ali Brown onwards. So Ali Brown makes the first list A double century in men's cricket. I think Belinda Clark has him beaten um, in the women, but he makes the first one in list A men's cricket. From that point forward, and the Pro 40 is a huge part of this, but then T20 now having 100, all these different things. And the fact that what you have in England is you have 18 teams, which means that if you're in the top 120 players, right, you're going to play between 20 and 30 white ball games a year without any fear that you're going to lose your job. Right? Like, you know, someone like Benny Howe was, uh, made a double century for Hampshire and can bowl a little bit of medium pace, got dumped by Hampshire. It's like, if that happens at a count, at, at a, in a Shield team, maybe even South Africa or India, it's like, he might have to spend a couple of years trying to get back in. Whereas he just like made phone calls and offered to play for a county for free. And next thing you know, he's got a 10 year career at Gloucester, right? Um, Alex Lees, what did he average? 25 one year and 17 another year. He's not playing Ranji again after that, right? He's not, he's not playing. What Sheffield Shield team is going to take a guy who in two years couldn't, didn't manage to average 40 combined, right? There's a freedom within English cricket that is now built in. And then you have the white ball cricket and the fact that from Ellie Brown onwards, these guys have been getting better and better at just smashing length balls. And I think that while a lot of that structure of English cricket probably doesn't help them in red ball cricket, what it has produced very specifically is the ability that when someone bowls a length ball outside of stump and it's not at 90 or 95 miles an hour um, and it's not reverse swinging um, that you can, or, or it's not a wrist spinner spinning it both ways. They, these guys are just better than anyone in the world at just hitting it back over the head for six. They maybe, maybe West Indies still have the English beaten for pure power. I don't think any, I've never seen a cricket culture have as many players who can consistently hit a ball off a length for six by 30 meters, right? Just consistently bang after bang after bang. That is how they are currently playing this, this cricket. Now has McCullum unlocked that? Yes. I think you're right in saying that. But when I went back through the numbers, it was like, so there's only been, you're like this, there's only been 40 times in cricket history when a team has batted 50 overs in a test match and gone at over 4.8 runs and over, right? And as it currently stands, McCullum is involved in (laughs) 12 of them, I think off the top of my head, might might be 11 of them, right? He's involved in 11 of them, but Stokes and Bairstow, are involved in another four. Now, obviously, three of them, there were two in this game. <laughs> there was one at um, Trent Bridge, but there's also Cape Town. Yeah. Right? That's still an outlier. And when you look at when you look at that, you go, okay, McCullum's a big part of it. But how much of it is McCullum coming into this, this uh, environment and saying, well, these guys could do what I did. In fact, if I was McCullum, I'd be going, you guys are better than me. And there's more of you, right? And we can really make something out of this. And if you go back to what Trevor Bayliss did with the white ball team, he basically did the same thing with the white ball team. He's like, guys, 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 too many theories. Go out there and smack it, right? Try and smack it as much. We'll, we'll stack the batting. Nathan Lehman will tell us that if we bat tonight, 9, 10, or 11, we'll never go out. Let's just stack the batting and you guys go out and hit it. That is a modern English thing. And if you look at India, Rishabh Pant, most exciting player in the world, and they're literally trying to turn him into an anchor. Australia tries to turn everyone except for Glenn Maxwell into an anchor and they don't even know how to use Glenn Maxwell, right? 
there is something very interesting within English cricket at the moment to do with this hitting. I, I really do think it's Pro 40 related, even if it's not the Pro 40 that changed everything. But the combination of Pro 40 and T20 at the same time allows these guys, uh, allowed these guys to you know, develop in this particular way. But I'm not taking away from your overseas coach point, but McCullum couldn't do this in South Africa at the moment. And there's another reason, which brings us on to number eight. Okay. Yep. That's what I've got down. Flat pitches. Flat pitches, man. That Trent Bridge pitch was the flattest pitch I've ever seen, pretty much. Lords, we know, gets better as, as the test goes on. Yep. We've seen this many, many times. You know, it, it's just the way that that test operates. I think Headingley, credit to England, because I think that pitch was, you know, starting a little bit about so turn. But, of course, hey, New Zealand, you didn't pick a spinner. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so Awkward. they couldn't capitalise. Um, so, yeah, the, it, the, the, the pitches are flat and England have not played on those kind of pitches over the last couple of years. I just, I don't just think they're flat. And Lords wasn't flat, right? Although, as you're, you, you are right that it got better. What I've noticed, and I haven't done a deep dive into this, is just how much better batting on day four and day five seems to be in England. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, we need George Novell on the podcast to talk about if this is one of those problems that they've had with them, the mega drainage systems that allows them to play more cricket, if that's what it is. But pitches do not seem to degrade, especially in England, the way that they did traditionally. Right. And I don't know if you noticed there was a small crack on the head only pitch. And when Southie hit it, it did do something. But I was thinking, all right, Southie, Southie's going to hit that one in five balls. And it's a small crack. And it's going to come back in. It's probably not going to run along the ground for at least a day. Um, and it's not going to give you many wickets. What we don't, we, we see the ball occasionally misbehave in, in England towards the end of a test. We see some variable bounce. What we don't see is consistently hard to bat on pitches because of the, uh, uh, what the pitches, you know, because they just don't degrade in the same way that they have done historically uh, in England and in world cricket. So I think that I, when you were talking about chases, I think there's already been a slight uptick in teams being able to chase over 250 um, more. It's only a slight, if you take out these last three tests, it's only a slight one, but it went from 4.1% to 4.8% over the last five years, right? Until the last month where it's gone over 6%, right? So it's only a slight uptick, but I do think that uptick has come from the fact that teams could score a lot easier at the end of the game. But the fact that England have done it three times in a month tells you that fifth day pitches in England are no longer those kinds of decks. And I think if we go back over the last couple of years, I think we'll see that, as, you know, whether 2019, or that, that was, was that a fourth day? <laughs> um, uh, 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 yeah. Was it 2017 when the West Indies did it? Yep. Um, we've seen, you know, England bat, uh, you know, England against India last summer, batting out very long at Lords when the pitch looked absolutely, you know, took out Jasper Brummer special, all those sorts of things. I, I could be wrong, but I reckon when I go into the numbers, we're going to see that the average on fifth days has probably risen and it's getting easier to bat at the end of games. Now, New Zealand could have batted better at any stage in this series. So that's not to take anything away from England. England still had to do what they had to do. But um, I, I do wonder if that has played into the fact that they chase, that you shouldn't be able to chase three 250 plus scores in a row, even if Bairstow's going, going nuts. Of course, there is. Reason number nine, because there is a similarity, isn't there, between all three run chases. 
Um, and this again is an English fault, but essentially it's far easier to successfully chase down a score when you're coming up against a bowling attack with a bowler missing. And that's not, not been the case over the last few years, but essentially the grand home in the first test, Cole Jameson in the second test. And you'd have to say, you know, Michael Bracewell, you know, I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. So I think that that's, that's well, another, that's another, that's another reason why, um, why, yeah. why England was successful. I think you're right. only thing I would add here is that New Zealand came in with five men bowling attacks in all five tests, sorry, in all three tests. The first test, they lived to Grantholm. Now, the ball was wobbling, and it was probably when he was at his absolute peak, so they lost him at the wrong time. They still had four frontline bowlers, though. Second test, Jameson going, you can't pull Jameson out of an attack. It doesn't matter how good Bolton, Southey and, and, and Henry are. If you pull Jameson out, that's a hole. And the fact that by that point, they weren't bowling Daryl Mitchell means they were really down um, to and a the, three-man bowling attack. And then, you know, and uh, the throwing Lords, the ball to they, Bracewell every now and again. Yeah, they, they weren't bowling Patel at Lords. I mean, okay, no, he's available. So, so Exactly. No, no, you're right. So they kind of, in, in Britain, if you look at those first two tests, they kind of almost made their spinners into non-bowlers yeah. um, at times, the way they do it. The last test, they go in with Bracewell's a specialist bowler. Now, no one in the no Bracewell doesn't think he's a specialist bowler, right? The only way this works is if you really trust Daryl Mitchell to get through eight to ten overs. And they didn't. And I don't know why. We talked about this on whatever it was, day one, day two. It didn't make any sense to me at the time that they weren't bowling Mitchell more because I, when he has bowled, I thought he's bowled quite well. They didn't bowl him. Again, they basically brought in a five-man bowling attack and turned it into a three-man bowling attack. Because it, the, the thing with Bracewell is, there are, he could probably, if, if Stokes was batting with folks, you'd probably bowl Bracewell, right? If, if, if Stuart Broad's out there, you can probably bowl Bracewell. Uh, you know, there are certain, maybe Lees is another one. I'm thinking about the left-handers. But even someone like folks who's not, who shouldn't punish him. Might score off him, but he shouldn't punish him. You can't bowl Bracewell to Joe Root and Johnny Bester, right? It just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. One's a brilliant player of spin. The other one particularly loves off spin. It, it, it's just a huge error. So to come in with a five-man bowling attack in three different tests and through your own mismanagement from picking the wrong players, from not using the players that you have available, and then by two very unlucky injuries, that kind of ended up with almost three-man bowling attacks over and over again. And, you know, there's a little bit of bad luck there, but you're not going to bowl Daryl Mitchell while he's hooping the ball around. I mean, surely at Headingley, we saw him bowl two balls and he swung the ball sideways. Now, number 10, the balls. Ah, of course. Yes, the balls. Okay, so the one thing, again, I haven't done a deep dive in this, but my guess is that the batting average in the first 30 overs of these games is going to be a lot lower than it is going to be after the from 30 to, to 80. Now, that's a normal thing in the rest of the world. Yeah. Not as much in England, where wickets sort of come more um, consistently because of the conditions and because of the Duke's balls, right? So you now have a situation where once those balls got soft, and we were seeing them being changed, what, as early as the 15th, 16th over, maybe even earlier, yeah. a couple of times, right? They were getting so soft and you can only change them so many times. You, you can't really change them because they go soft. You can only change them when they go soft. And that means they go out of shape, right? 
And I was talking to someone from the ICC about this and, and they were basically saying, you know, we, th- this is an embarrassment, but they weren't saying it was embarrassment as if Dukes had let cricket down. They were saying that cricket hasn't really ever looked after these manufacturers. So Kookaburra and Dukes, I mean, you, you and I know this, they're tiny little companies, right? Kookaburra make most of their money from hockey and Dukes are like, you know, it's a tiny little tin shed in, I don't know, wherever it is. In, in the area where it is. <laughs> um, these, these are not, this is not like Adidas making the, you know, the um, Predator the, ball or something. The yeah. Football World Cup ball oh, or yeah. Wilson making the NBA ball, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, so, so you have, and then you have a situation where we know what happened here. We know that the, the quality of leather went down because of COVID. And also, Dukes didn't have as many staff members available to them during COVID. And this is the batch that is coming through because of that. So no one's blaming them because the integrity of your sport's most important thing shouldn't be put in the hands of a company with 30 or 40 employees um, in rural England. I, I can't remember where they are. Are they in rural England? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. It would make sense that they are in... They're not in London. They're not in Manchester. They're not in Birmingham. They're using cowhide. Yeah. And so, so you'd imagine that, that they must be near to some kind of farm. I, lo- I love your reckoning. I mean, that's just perfect <laughs> reasoning, isn't it? They're using cows. They'll be near a farm. So <laughs> the balls played a big part because I think by the end, if you look at Mitchell and Blundell and you look at Bairstow, Stokes, Root... Um, and Overton, I suppose you could throw in, even Broad, once those balls got soft, you could really play in a different manner. And I still think that England bowled better with the softer balls than New Zealand did. Um, but regardless of that, I thought New Zealand didn't take advantage of the soft balls in the same way that England did with a bat. So there you go. That's there's our 10, there's a, there's our 10 reasons. No, no, I think that's about it, isn't it? I mean, we haven't even got to Potts. No. Okay. Go on. Well, I mean, like again, I I think I, I think I did this. Um, I'm not sure if I did it on the podcast with you, but he would have been the eighth or ninth best bowler on the depth chart coming into that first test. Um, you don't expect him to come in and dominate the way he did. I know we've seen it with Scott Boland recently, so maybe and Akshar Patel. So maybe we're getting a little bit numb to these guys coming in and absolutely dominating but realistically you can't you should never expect someone like Potts to come in and have the kind of series he's had the impact he had in the first test but then he basically strangled Blundell and and Mitchell to a point that they couldn't dominate at times uh very lucky we talked about Leach oh my god Leach in this particular test again you know talking no I would say that outside of people who had a direct relationship with Jack Leach, if you talk to former players or even current players, they're all saying Leach can't play again unless he's in Asia. Everyone's been saying this, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's the sort of thing that former players won't say publicly because they, yeah. you know, they mate, don't want to be seen that way. You're absolutely right. They say the amount of people I've spoken to at, at the queue for food or whatever, yep. I just like... He's just not good enough. And that England may as well just go in with another seamer because there's no point playing Jack Leach. And we know that they weren't wrong that he changed his technique in this particular test. Um, and in doing so, he got more drift. 
he looked a bit more dangerous early on in the game for me. He got some, he obviously got a lucky wicket that probably helped him with confidence. Although the way Henry Nichols plays left arm, biggest spin, he was going to go out to them anyway. But, um, you know, I think that is a really, really important thing. England haven't, since Moen Ali, haven't played at home with a spinner that they trust. And if nothing else, even forget the 10 wickets, last two tests, Ben Stokes trusted Jack Leach. And that's a huge uh, advantage. So there's 12. Perfect. Okay. Well, I think that's it. So um, let's have a little cast our eyes over what's going to happen uh, in the next couple of years. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. If your passion for travel is on par with your passion for cricket, then I have some excellent news. The ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is being hosted in Barbados this June, which makes it the perfect destination for your summer holidays this year. To make the most of your trip, you can also experience eight matches from the series in Barbados, including... England against Scotland and England against Australia. In under a month's time, you could be spending your days exploring the vibrant streets of Bridgetown, drinking rum in the sunshine and experiencing exotic Bayesian delicacies in the culinary capital of the Caribbean. There truly is something for everyone. There's no need to wait a second longer. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados, truly the best place to be a cricket fan. What is going to happen tomorrow? Okay, Jared, so... A couple of years. Well, yeah, well, or even next month. No, August. Or next, <laughs> or next weekend. Um, a couple of, uh, couple of shows ago, I, was, I said that essentially this is going to be the end of cricket because after this, there is no, there's, there's no other world or universe to explore. Once England have got through Basball for two or three years and it's stopped working, there's what's after that? There's nothing, especially after the rest of the world copies England's methods. It, Test cricket just goes crazy for a couple of years. I mean, you know, just the fact that the crowd, had, just, the, just the fact that Stuart Broad and the team were jeering up the crowd at half past five on a day three at Headingley when, Everybody just wants to go home. And suddenly it's like, oh, yeah, it's test cricket. Yeah. You can just imagine, you know, whoever the equivalent of Atomic Kitten are going to be pictured at cricket grounds. Test cricket's going to be sexy again. There's going to be <laughs> famous people there and everybody's going to want in. And it's going to be, you know, the, the hottest ticket in town, essentially, for the next couple of years. You say that like famous people don't come to the cricket already. They're some of the fam- most famous octogenarians are always a cricket. <laughs> Very true. 
Um, but how do you see it? So we, we've talked about the changes, and some of those changes are not going to stick around for long. England are always going to play at home. They're not always going to be playing New Zealand. The Duke's ball, wherever they come from, are, are going to sort their, their sort it out, and it's not going to be quite as quite as a COVID ridiculous as it's been. You know, all of these things are going to change. So where's it going? Where are we going with all this? Okay, the first thing I would say is that I think I can't think of another team who will be able to copy England's method at the moment, and and then on top of that. Name me another one-day team who plays like England. So England have already showed it to be the best method in one-day cricket. No one else has worked out how to copy it there. And I'd be very surprised if another test team can do it as well. You need need specific kinds. It's not just attacking players you need. You need specific kind of attacking players. Um, So I think that's probably the most interesting thing. You're right that... You know, I mean, imagine trying to do this on the West Indies pitches. <laughs> yeah, yeah, those you know, first two tests. <laughs> try, try do this in you know in a glue pot in Dhaka. Um, <laughs> you know, Ashwin, Ashwin, Jadeja, and Akshar are bowling to you on, on, on a turning pitch, or um, or you know, the Wackers started cracking up on day three. You know, it's just unlikely that this is going to go. Where I think it's interesting is if it does work for England and they win a lot more they're probably only going to win at 60 percent, just because there's such a high variance between them probably getting bowled out for nothing and them making 400 in in you know what would it be in these days 75 overs i suppose (laughs) at the current rate right um and so i think in english cricket it could revolutionize everything i wonder how much it changes everything else but i've been thinking about this a lot if you go back to mccullum's career the one thing that he managed to do is when he was going in on those sorts of days, he didn't do it all the time. So his strike rate is of guys over 5,000 test runs. I think he's about the seventh or eighth highest strike rate, but he's a long way away from Saywag and Gilchrist. Uh, I think he's at 64 and they're, at, they're both in the eighties, I think. Right. So he did pick and choose when he attacked, but what he did was is in the way that he attacked, he basically set it up so that you couldn't bowl normal line and length. So will we just get a better combination of bowlers being able to go between white ball skill and red ball skill when they need to? Whereas I think anyone who's watched this series would be like, New Zealand couldn't just flip the switch in their mind and start bowling in white ball method. And because they did, you know, where were the wide Yorkers, right? Literally just say to him, okay, you, you want to get, you want to win this game. We're going to put a bunch of fielders out on the offside and bowl you wide walk. Yorkers for a little while um and we think your we think your beans are going to use the Gareth Batty line so much that you'll hit one straight up in the air here they didn't try anything like that and I wonder if we will see that and we already know that uh, what, T20 cricket isn't ramping up in in a in a runs per over um so much so the la- last couple of years have actually been slightly lower than the uh, than the than the years before. It's not like every year we put on half a run and over in T Twenty cricket or anything, right? The bowlers have found a way to f- fight back. So if they can sort of switch between those two modes a little bit better, that will be interesting. But I just can't see. I can't think of another team who just has the consistent hitters available to them, where they can try this method at the moment. I mean, what if you had Warner, Head, 
maybe if you let Kawaja, you know, off the leash a little bit, is is that a possible thing? I, I don't know. But you look at someone like Cameron Green, he likes to knock it around. Look at, look at um, you know, Mitchell's a T20 player. But I can't imagine Mitchell ever playing in innings like we've just seen from Stokes or Best. Can you in, te- in a test match? Um, so it's not like there's a bunch of other teams that are out there that are like this. But what I would say is that Australia decided in the mid-90s they were going to try and score at around four runs and over. And if you look at run rates from that point forward, there was absolutely no doubt that they changed the way that people thought about test cricket. And there was a bit of a bump. And we've had that bump for the last, what, 25 years, maybe even, you know, uh, you know, well, maybe even slightly longer than that now, maybe 27, 28 years. It's possible that England could do something like that. But I, I think even if you look at McCullum's career, I don't think they'll be able to continually do this and I don't think McCullum thinks I'll be able to continually do this either. I think a lot of things felt all the different reasons we talked about fell into their hand, hands a little bit. Brilliant stuff. Well, uh, one thing I will say is it does. It's just been interesting and fun. And it's mm. just been great to be able to talk about something different because we were literally having the same conversation about this England team for the best part of, wow, three or four years, you know? Yeah. Insert Alistair Cook's uh, batting partners or the people who'd opened the batting since Alistair Cook retired with, you know, spinners who've bowled for Australia since Shane Warne retired. It was that kind of like similar kind of conversation. Then, of course, Nathan Lyon turns up. And now, now of course, um, you know, we're, we're talking about something completely different with, with England. And it's it, it needed to happen because hmm. the game was just, it was just going. It was just dull. Um, and yeah, it's been great. Okay, well, look, that'll do us. Um, when will we be back? I suppose that Harvey's off on another golfing trip. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll see you in Birmingham. See you up there, mate. See, that'd be interesting as well. Just bit Birmingham. Birmingham. Well, Birmingham. Oh, Birmingham's sorry. Always, Birmingham's always interesting, but I'd love to see, uh, I'd love to see how Jasper Brumra will deal. He might captain, you know, Bumbra, if Rohit Sharma's out. I mean, I haven't even thought about I haven't finished my pieces from this last test yet. <laughs> well, it is a bit mad that India are here. Either way, um, I'll see you in Birmingham. All right. See you there. 5 to 11. Don't be late. Oh, no, don't get there at 5 to 11. The test starts at 10.30. Does it really? Yeah. <laughs> I've just realised, yeah. Brought, so I'm brought... going to be there even later. <laughs> You'll be there for uh, the start of the second session. Oh, my God. <laughs> anyway, India will be five down. You heard it here first. Um, all right, matey, take it easy. Uh, and thanks for listening to uh, the following on podcast. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. And this is your gentle reminder that Barbados is the best place to be a cricket fan. With eight matches from the ICC Men's T20 Cricket World Cup Series taking place in Barbados this summer, including the final, you can experience the summer of a lifetime by booking today. 
Aside from immersing in world-class cricket in the sunshine, Barbados is the dream destination for all travel enthusiasts. It is where adventure meets paradise, the culinary capital of the Caribbean, and better still, the birthplace of rum. If you are keen to unite with cricket fans across the globe for what is set to be an unforgettable summer, then head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 